Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I will be moderating today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you and we invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details about our spring 2003 forums will be found online at www.ewestminster.org. I am pleased to welcome to the forum today a man that the Leadership Project, a national survey of 11,000 administrators and faculty, named one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education and one of the 10 key agenda setters of the past decade, Parker J. Palmer. Dr. Palmer's own higher education began here in Minnesota with a bachelor's degree in philosophy and sociology from Carleton College, which awarded him the Distinguished Alumnus Achievement Award in 2001. He went on to study at Union Theological Seminary and at the University of California in Berkeley. He leads a peripatetic existence as a teacher, having taught at such diverse institutions as Georgetown University, Beloit College, and Pendle Hill, the Quaker Living Learning Community. Dr. Palmer serves as Senior Associate of the American Association of Higher Education and is the founder of the Fetzer Institute's Teacher Formation Program for K-12 teachers across the country. Parker Palmer's books, among them, Let Your Life Speak and The Courage to Teach, as well as The Company of Strangers, have been recognized with awards from the National Educational Press Association and the Associated Church Press, among others. His thoughts on education, on religion, and on social change have been quoted throughout the national media. Dr. Palmer speaks to us during a time in our nation's history in which we feel particularly vulnerable and more inclined toward inward retreating than toward reaching out to our neighbors. He will speak to us today on the virtue of sharing the company of strangers. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Parker J. Palmer. Well, thanks very much. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm, I thank all of you for coming out, and I thank Minnesota Public Radio for having us on the air. Knowing I was going to be on public radio, I wore my best tie, and uh, just want to remind everybody to send in their pledges. <laughs> I want to talk today about one of the most critical issues of our time, our capacity as individuals and as a society to live creatively in the company of strangers, to be welcoming and hospitable instead of fearful and hostile to people who seem other than us, whether in terms of religion, race, ethnicity, social class, sexual orientation, or any of the other markers we so often use to decide who will be part of our world and who is not. Our society is so laced with fear of the stranger these days that we need a vision of new possibilities. So I want to share one with you from one of the world's leading authorities on this matter, a New York taxicab driver, 
indeed a leading authority on any matter that you could name um, when I met this man some years ago. I was in lower Manhattan and I needed to get uptown. I hopped into a cab and soon found myself careening up Broadway at about 65 miles an hour with no apparent regard on the driver's part for pedestrians, stoplights, or other vehicles. I became fearful for my life and decided that if I asked the taxi driver some questions about his life, he might remember that he had one and in an effort to protect it would also indirectly protect mine. So I said in a quaking voice, appropriate for a Quaker, how do you like your work? This was just the right question to ask him. The problem was that he was now driving faster as he answered and turning around to look at me as he spoke. <laughs> but I was deeply enthralled by his answer and I started taking notes. I still have these scratchy notes somewhere at home. Well, he said, you never know who's getting into the cab so it's a little dangerous. But you meet a lot of people you get to know the public, which teaches you a lot in life. You don't know anything if you don't know the public. You exchange ideas, and you learn a lot from people. It's like going to school. Meeting all these different kinds of people, everything helps. It doesn't hurt. If you only like one kind of people, it's no good. We talk. If I have a better idea, I tell them. <laughs> Maybe they say yes. Maybe they say no. That's how I educate myself. It makes me happy. You can't buy this kind of education. If you're with the same kind of people all the time, it's like wearing the same suit all the time. You get sick of it. But the public, that keeps you alive. I don't know a scholar in the world who could have made a better statement about the topic I want to explore with you today than that New York City cabbie. I once heard someone say, you can learn a lot about people by finding out who they mean when they say, we. My taxi driver had a wonderfully expansive sense of we. Without being naive, it's a little dangerous, you never know who's getting into the cab. Without being naive, he was a citizen of his world a full-body immersion citizen of his world. But many of us, and I will let you guess who I mean by that, have a much narrower sense of who we are. Following September 11, 2001, one of the most common questions to be heard in our land was, how could this happen to us? The question implies that we are somehow set apart from the rest of the world, a world in which cruel and catastrophic death tends to be more the rule than the exception for many, many people. And we don't need to look overseas for answers. After September 11th, one of the most heartbreaking things I heard was an interview with a very thoughtful African-American teenager from Harlem. He said that he and people in his neighborhood were not affected the same way by September 11th as many other Americans were because all their lives they had lived in a war zone where random death was a daily event, where most people his age assume that they will die young and violently. 
I think one of the most critical questions left by September 11th is simply this. Will we use that experience to identify more deeply with the suffering of strangers at home and around the world and try to do something about it? Or will we use that experience to distance ourselves even further from the otherness that threatens our fearful hearts? There are great personal benefits that come from learning to welcome the stranger into our lives. As that taxi driver teaches us, hospitality to the stranger can enlarge our minds, expand our hearts, and simply make us feel more at home on the face of the earth. One of the things I love most about life in the company of strangers is the comedy that arises naturally when otherness interacts and we get our wires crossed. Let me tell another story. Some years ago, I was at a remarkable place called the Jewish Community Center in Rochester, New York, leading a program there. They have a beautiful interior garden, which is constructed as a memorial to the many, many family members of Rochester Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust. And during one lunch break, I went there for half an hour to meditate, to try, as I think we need to do, not to forget. And I came out of that garden deeply moved and ran across the director of the Jewish Community Center. I said, this center is such a powerful testimony to Jewish history and Jewish identity and Jewish integrity and I thank you for that witness. And he said, well, we want to be all of that, but we also want to practice the ancient biblical virtue of hospitality to the stranger, and funny things happen as a result. I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, last week we hired a Gentile woman to be our office receptionist, and we told her that here when we answer the phone, we say good morning or good afternoon, Jewish Community Center, shalom. He said, I was passing through the office when I heard her take her first call, and I heard her say, good morning, Jewish Community Center, Shazam. <laughs> Only a Gentile could do that. But I ask you to contrast the joy in a story like that, and the, the joy that comes from diversity and the richness of plural experience, contrast that to life lived in a gated community, literally or metaphorically gated, where the stranger is feared and excluded and everything becomes cramped, boring, and even more fearful. A place where fear of the stranger turns private life into a prison. If you want to expose the fallacy behind the fear of strangers that leads to this self-imprisonment. Look at our conventional attitudes towards crime. Look among suburbanites, the people among whom I grew up in the Chicago area, who are afraid to go downtown for fear they will be murdered by a stranger. Or look at many of us who constantly give our children the message, don't talk to strangers. Strangers are always to be feared. Look at those practices and attitudes, and then look at the facts. 
if you are to have the tragic misfortune to meet up with mayhem or murder in your life, how is it most likely to happen? The statistics are very clear, not at the hands of a stranger, but at the hands of someone you know, at least slightly, and maybe even have trusted. We teach our children not to talk to strangers, and the media hype fear of the stranger all the time in relation to children. And of course, children need to be cautious. You never know who's getting into the cab. But if a child in our society is to have the horrendous fate of meeting up with physical or sexual abuse, how is it most likely to happen? Not at the hands of a stranger, overwhelmingly so at the hands of someone that child knows, perhaps trusts, and loves. Does it not seem clear that we take fears we don't want to deal with about realities close to home, and instead of courageously focusing them where they belong, we project them on the scapegoat, the stranger? Does it not seem clear that our fear of the stranger is, among other things, an evasive tactic for not dealing with what we need to be dealing with? as this society proceeds to scare all of us, not least our children, with terrifying images of the stranger. We need a strong counter-movement in our families, our religious communities, and our schools to celebrate and help us all feel at home in the rich and rewarding diversity of this world. Hospitality to the stranger brings not only great personal benefits, it turns out also that hospitality to the stranger is a great political asset. In fact, hospitality to the stranger helps make democracy itself possible. Democracy depends on the vitality of what we call the public life, this realm of social experience that mediates between the private, where we live our lives with family and friends, and the political, where power gets institutionalized. Political, public, private. This crucial middle realm of public life without which both politics and private life become impoverished and indeed dangerous. What is the public life? Well, the only English word that conveys its true flavor is blessedly the word pub. From those great places in England that we don't have too many of here in the United States, the English pub being a very different creature than an American bar. Many years ago, I went to England. I was raised in the Methodist church, and I was a Methodist at that time. And in those days, Methodists are teetotaler, were teetotalers. So as a Methodist, I did not go into the pubs. I went in as a sociologist instead. <laughs> And I loved what I saw there. Here was the company of strangers, people of all ages, old and young, children and strollers, middle-aged people coming in after work, the elderly passing their time pleasantly playing cards with each other, children running around and being loved by the community. The company of strangers coming together in a creative way not in a place where the purpose was to anesthetize oneself, 
as is too often the case in our country, but in a place where the purpose was to weave and reweave the fabric of community. The public life at its best is like a pub, a public house, it's where the word comes from. It's all of those places and occasions that allow the company of strangers to come together creatively on, on city sidewalks, in parks and squares, in sidewalk cafes, block parties, and farmers markets, marches and rallies, voluntary associations in which strangers can come together and make common cause. When the company of strangers is alive and well, mediating between the private and the political, it protects both of those other realms and evokes the best from them. A healthy public life provides a buffer zone that keeps the long arm of political power from reaching directly into our privacy and manipulating us there. And a healthy public life serves as a megaphone to amplify the voice of the private individual so that it can be heard in those thick and often uh, hard of hearing boxes of power. If you want to understand the crucial role of public life in a democracy, the, the crucial importance of keeping the company of strangers healthy, simply look at the first things dictators do to establish totalitarian rule in any society. It's a two-step process. First, you whip up fear of the stranger, as Hitler did about the Jews. And then you shut down all the public places where strangers of any sort might gather, interact, form an opinion different from the opinion that holds power, and stand over against it. In a totalitarian society, you cannot gather on the streets to talk. That's a dangerous insurrectionist act. In a totalitarian society, all voluntary associations are shut down, including churches, except those willing to dance to the piper's tune. All around the world, ordinary people have been willing to shed blood to regain and reclaim the public life that was stolen from them by dictatorial regimes. Some of you know the story of the grandmothers in Chile and Argentina, these brave women who saw on their bureaus the pictures of the disappeared, the sons and daughters, the children and grandchildren, the husbands and grandfathers and, grand and family members who had who had been snatched out of the private realm by that long arm of power reaching down and saying, you are a threat to this establishment and we are going to disappear you. And those grandmothers, first by ones and twos and tens and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, took to the streets of those societies, carrying posters with enlarged pictures of their loved ones who were dead and gone, marching silently to protest this horrible, egregious misuse of power and demanding their public life back, and they got it, and they have slowly contributed to the, to the coming of some justice in those societies. But we, we in this country, 
let our public life leach away. The city streets, which have always, since Greek times, been a place of hospitality for the company of strangers, get replaced in our society by what? Shopping malls. I know it's dangerous talk in this town, but I have to do it. I have to speak the truth. Shopping malls under private ownership that across this country have said, yes, this is where the public gathers these days, but we will not allow political activity to take place here. We will, we will discontinue the great social tradition of commercial activity and public life intermingling on the free and open city streets. And we will shut down these huge arenas where most people now go for one purpose and one purpose only, private consumption, if you have the coins in your pocket to do it. There have been court cases where the courts have said, sorry, even though they're private property, you're going to have to open them to things like marches and rallies and pamphleting and other forms of protest, because without it, our democracy is going to die a slow, painful death. But there has not been enough of that. We let our public life leach away while people around the world shed blood to reclaim theirs because they know the health that is inherent in the company of strangers. Well, what does all this have to do with religion? It seems to me, at least, a very great deal. And as is so often the case with anything as powerfully charged and human as religion is, religion is a two-edged sword when it comes to nurturing the company of strangers. In its most pathological forms, religion has proven to be a strong force in making people strangers to each other. A strong force in drawing those lines that create fear and hostility toward otherness. The great poet and good Anglican W.H. Auden once said something that I adore, a parody of his own church-going people. He said, the typical Christian attitude seems to be, God put us in the world to save all those other people. Why God put all those other people in the world, we haven't got the foggiest notion. <laughs> I think there's too much truth in that sometimes. And that attitude, which Auden parried, parodied so brilliantly, is a not-so-subtle insult to God, is it not? An insult that seems so self-evident to me that I will not bother to argue the point in the limited time I have left. Instead, I want to turn to the great contribution that religion has made and can continue to make to affirming, nurturing, and sustaining the company of strangers. My eyes were opened some years ago when I started rereading the texts of my own tradition, the Christian tradition and indeed the Hebrew Bible, and found time after time stories of strangers proving to be the hinge point of the whole narrative, the turning point of the journey. Take the 18th chapter of the very first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, 
where one finds this remarkable story about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, not incidentally, being a figure who links Islam, Judaism, and Christianity in some significant ways. In this story, in the 18th chapter of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are in their private life in the desert at Hebron when three strangers approach across the sand. It must have been a frightening moment. They were elderly. In our society, we'd run inside, triple lock the door, and maybe get the handgun out of the bedstand. I don't know, fire a warning shot across the bow. But that's not what you did in desert society. A nomadic desert tribal people majored in hospitality because they knew that the hospitality you extend to the stranger today may well be the hospitality you need extended to you tomorrow. And so they said to these strangers, you're strangers, but you must be tired and hungry. Come sit and eat. Let us welcome you to this place. And in that welcoming, they found the amazing news that Sarah would bear a child and that this child would be the way God chose to deliver promises to the Hebrew people. What fascinates me about that story is that if Abraham and Sarah had turned the strangers away in fear and hostility, the faith journey of an entire people would have come to a crashing halt in the 18th chapter of Genesis. The Bible would have been a lot shorter than it is. Now, I, for one, in seminary would have appreciated that. I, uh, I got bad grades in Bible because it's simply too long. But this moment of welcoming the stranger turns out time and time again in the texts of these great traditions to be the door that opens into the next step on the journey. Why? Because transcendent truth, God's truth, is simply too large to be understood without hospitality to the stranger who sees things differently than I do. Transcendent truth requires the eyes and ears of many. And hospitality is what opens us to whatever it is the stranger may have to say, may have to teach us. As an educational institution, the church needs to open us to alien modes of thought simply because truth is too big for any one of us to get it. And the stranger's experience and the way the stranger's experience turns the prism will refract the light differently than I am able to do by myself. What better place to study diverse and even conflicting views of reality than in a religious community which proclaims that the truth is too large to be contained by any of our concepts about it. The church itself as a social institution and all religious communities need also, I think, to turn more and more towards being public spaces as Westminster Presbyterian Church is doing at this very moment and on this very day. I think we need to worry when we talk too much about the church family. The family is an image from the private realm. And the family is a place where the stranger doesn't come in as stranger, 
unless you're trying to make a friend or family member out of that person, or unless it's someone invading your property without warrant, the church needs to be a bridge institution between the private and the political. What better place to host the company of strangers than a place where we proclaim that all men and women are children from one source. When we host the company of strangers, we are living up to that great desert tradition of hospitality that is at the root system, certainly, of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Somebody once said that one of the thinnest books ever to be written would be titled Deserts That Did Not Develop, or excuse me, Religions That Did Not Develop Near Sand. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. It was a desert tradition in which the stranger was welcomed partly because the stranger may bring new truth and partly because people understood the necessity of daily reweaving the fabric of hospitality on which we all depend. There's ever so much more to say and I look forward to a chance to, to uh, speak with you in dialogue when we come back to that part of our time together. Let me just end with a few lines from a wonderful poem by Marge Piercy. It's called The Low Road. And in this poem, Marge Piercy is writing about questions of social justice, questions of community building, questions of reclaiming for our society the deepest values of a democracy that depends on all of us coming together. She asks towards the end of this poem, when will this start to happen? And her answer is this. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they said no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean, and each day you mean one more. May we each day mean one more. Thank you very much. Thank you, Parker J. Palmer. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is teacher, writer, and activist Parker J. Palmer, who has just spoken on the topic of the company of strangers. While the ushers collect questions from our audience at Westminster, we would like to remind our Minnesota public radio audience that Forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can visit us at www.ewestminster.org. We would like to express our thanks today to St. Olaf Catholic Church and to the College of St. Catherine, both of which helped to bring Parker Palmer to town this week. Dr. Palmer will speak at O'Shaughnessy Auditorium this evening at 7.30 on the topic of the undivided life, and tickets will be available at the door. In addition, we would like to thank the General Mills, Kellogg, Baker, and Star Tribune Foundations for their ongoing support of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, and to our many individual donors, our thanks as well. 
Dr. Palmer, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. If you had a kindergarten child, what kinds of things would you do to help that child learn the importance of community? And then the same question is asked about a teenager. Well, the, um, let me start with the kindergartner, because what I'm convinced of about very young children is that they know more about community than I do or we do. Um, we're the ones who put obstacles in their way. We're the ones who start drawing the lines of division. And I almost want to turn the question around and ask, how might I sit and learn from a kindergartner about openness to diversity, about hospitality to all whom he or she meet? And I really think that might not be a bad thing for grown-ups to do. Um, I've often said I just envy the daylights out of kindergarten teachers because they get to spend long hours every day in the presence of real human beings who, who are, as we were meant to be, inquiring and learning and open to seeing things from different angles. But as a part of social experience, I would simply want to make sure that that child met people of many different kinds, came to feel comfortable in their presence, and could deal, I would want with that child to deal openly with whatever goes on in the media or in the neighborhood or in popular culture that is divisive and demeaning of other people. Uh, as far as the teenager goes, um, again, I think we all have within us that child who wants to be open to the world. I think in the teenage years we start to build this or develop this kind of consciousness of, of divisions within the group, uh, cliques form, lines get drawn. The, the task becomes more complicated, but I think, I think with a teenager the most important thing a parent can do is to model what an open, generous heart looks like, including towards the teenager, him or herself which is sometimes challenging. <laughs> Speaking as the parent of a teenager, I'd, I'd agree with that latter comment, but it's, we do learn a lot from our children. This questioner asks about our society. We seem to be a society split into two ideologically, split in two parts. Witness the recent elections. We seem like a Super Bowl society where half of us win, the other half lose, and we almost seem as if we have two halves in one society. Would you comment? Well, uh, I've certainly thought a lot about the uh, political dynamic of a society being split right down the middle in terms of that moment of casting a ballot that says Democrat, Independent, Republican, whatever. Um, I think what's very important, though, to remember is that that, that tiny little snapshot of choice at a moment in time barely begins to represent or suggest the incredible diversity that exists among us. Um, I don't worry too much, frankly, about a democracy split down the middle. I've always understood that that's what democracy is all about. Uh, when a society elects a president by a 99.9% .9 margin, that's when you start to worry. Um, 
what's important to me is to, is to look behind the act of voting and indeed beneath the political process to the quality of our public life. One of the sad things that's happened in our public life is that we tend to have fewer and fewer organizations that have the voluntary associations in particular that have the capacity to host diversity of opinion. We have more and more so-called single cause groups. And single cause groups are very toxic to the health of public life. Public life has always depended on voluntary associations like a church, for example, which were held together by some fundamental commonality, but which within themselves allowed for a great range of opinion and uh, thought and action on other matters, and had forms of reflection and decision-making that allowed people to grow from that diversity. Let, let me put a little edge on this. I have been asked over the years to come in and do workshops on racial diversity, for example, in so-called homogeneous white congregations. And I've always rejected the premise. I've always said, there is no such thing as a homogeneous white congregation. There's only a bunch of white people pretending to be alike. It's spending a lot of energy pretending that they don't have any differences among them because they're so afraid that when they come to that point of seeing their differences, the community's gonna fly apart. That, that's an old dynamic in religious life and we need to break through it. We need to understand that wherever two or three are gathered, there are also two or three opinions on almost everything under the sun. And we need to create welcoming spaces in congregations where people look alike to learn that it's okay not to think alike, it's okay not to feel alike, it's okay not to believe alike, and that community will grow richer if we are able to create those hospitable, those hospitable spaces. So I think that's a, that's a big task in, in the renewal of our public life, to remember that, it, that it's not all about politics. In fact, there's this huge nine-tenths of the iceberg beneath that moment of voting where, where we make it or break it in terms of democracy, diversity, and the vitality of a society like the one we're, we hold in trust. Now a question related to the American economic system. You have suggested that part of the modern impulse towards selfishness or privatization is a product of our economic system. If we want the benefits of capitalism, how do we resolve the tension between capitalism and a more hospitable world where the stranger is welcomed and community is developed? I don't think there is anything inherent in capitalism that forbids us from from mingling private and public functions. Indeed, I think it's one of the great traditions in this country and in the history of democracy to see that the marketplace is also a place where the public comes together and political processes take root. Um, we get our concept of the public from the Greeks who, who, who invented or evolved or found emerging among them the public life in the middle of the, the shopping center, the center of town where folks came to meet consumer needs, but in the process also sat to debate the matters of the day. Not unlike the pub in England, where social needs indeed get met, 
the need to have a meal, the need to have a drink, whatever it may be, but community building is also going on. I don't think there's anything inherent. Let me give some examples. There are corporate leaders, for example, who have said, we've destroyed the public life in our downtown areas by building these massive office buildings that come with all of their functionality right down to the sidewalk, squeezing out all of those arenas where the public might mingle and the, the social fabric of this city might become healthier, which then redounds to the benefit of business. And so they have redesigned buildings. I think some of it's gone on in the Twin Cities to open more public spaces on the ground level of those buildings so that the public life can, can happen without being totally squeezed out by a very narrow and pinched concept of commercialism. There's, there's no necessary warfare here. It's a matter of being wise stewards and even of having enlightened self-interest because when the community starts to fall apart, business also suffers. I mean, it's just a secret hidden in plain sight. <laughs> and wise business leadership has been onto that ever since the time of Jane Jacobs and William White writing about how the design of cities can either sustain or undermine uh, the success of business. So I don't find anything inherently contradictory. This question comes from a native person in the audience who points out, by the way, that he is one of, comes from many religions that do not originate near bodies of sand. Right. <laughs> uh, he notes that they have, and native peoples have experience internally and externally with strangers. And he asks, how can the U.S. Uh, work on it, improving its internal relations with strangers within its culture, within its land, when it seems to be at the same time working so hard to alienate itself on a global scale and creating more adversaries than friends? Well, there is an inherent contradiction right there, absolutely, and it's one that ought to pain us very profoundly. Um, it, we have to keep understanding, and it's why I mentioned the teenager from Harlem, that just as we make enemies around the world by alienating, marginalizing, and regarding as somehow in, in an inferior way other than us, certain peoples, so we have done that here at home. I don't have tremendous amount of experience with Native American peoples or cultures. I have spent an Easter or two at the Taos Pueblo with great joy in celebrating it in Native American style. But one place that I do know fairly well is Appalachia. And it's hardly understood in this society that Appalachia is a third world in our midst and that we have made it that way by economic practices that are as exploitative and as, as, as cruelly illegal of resources in that region as any region we've ever gone into in Latin America or Africa or there in the Middle East or anywhere else you can name. So these are huge jobs. They are the jobs laid on us by all the wisdom traditions. They are jobs about loving and being merciful and doing justice and walking humbly. And the point about such jobs is you're not going to do them 
if you're looking for fixes or want to be measured by effectiveness in your own lifetime. We keep in this, we keep in this culture taking on smaller and smaller tasks because they're the ones that we can demonstrate effectiveness on. And, and it's a rotten standard, um, precisely because it leads us to take on tasks that aren't the most significant, demanding, and worthy. In the field where I work, we know how to create a high-stakes, standardized test that we give to all children across the country. And we do it and think we're accomplishing something. But we still know very little about how to educate people. And we're very little invested in what real education takes. Well, what I'm trying to say is, in relation to these intractable, seemingly intractable issues, like the relation of folks like me to Native Americans, or the relation of folks like me to a region like Appalachia, what we need is people who understand that effectiveness is not the standard faithfulness is faithfulness to the truth, faithfulness to justice, faithfulness to the beloved community, and not some kind of quick fix and simplistic answer that's going to make us feel good enough to just blow the thing off. We need engagement, and we need to be in it for the long haul. One of our audience members notes that on TV yesterday she heard that the enemy is here, living among us, and felt a certain sense of fear rising in her when she heard that. And another audience member asks then, do you believe the culture of fear that we are experiencing in alarming ways in this country, particularly after September 11th last year, might be a fertile ground for the growth of totalitarianism in our nation? Well, let me say, first of all, the enemy is always here, in here, out there. Um, I have a shadow side in myself. I talk about it sometimes as a fascism of the heart, that when the difference between you and me gets too great, when your view of what's good or true or beautiful becomes too threatening to mine, I will find some way to kill you off. That's part of the dynamic of otherness. I won't do it with a bullet or a gas chamber. I'll do it with a category, a label, a phrase of dismissal oh, you're just a fill-in-the-blank that renders you irrelevant to my life, right? And I think that's a fair definition of what it means to kill somebody off. So the enemy is always here, and maybe we would have less fear about it by acknowledging that first it is within ourselves and then it is among us. May I point out that the people who did the most to bring down the American economy in the last year or two were not terrorists from another land. They were guys who looked a lot like me, who wore really good suits <laughs> and went to colleges, I hope not exactly like Carleton, but good places where they got good grades, including in the courses in ethics. And I have sometimes asked, just as a, in an effort to be provocative, should we bring the special forces home from <laughs> Afghanistan and send them to Westchester and Winnetka and Scarsdale and Palo Alto to root these people out of their guard-gated communities and call them to justice. Um, but I say that in, in full knowledge of the fact that I have 
the enemy within me as well. And, and we have to be talking about these things honestly and openly with each other. We can't settle for caricatures and simplistic analyses of what this is all about. We're, we're all in a furor now about Osama bin Laden. And of course he's a murderer, but he was a murderer when we were supporting and arming him. And, and we have, we've lost the moral compass that says a murderer is a murderer is a murderer. And, and we have to get it back. So we're in a very complicated situation. And part of what we need to get out of it, I think, is just getting back to basics, getting, getting through the illusions and mythologies that this society is so in love with generating and, and that unfortunately the media collaborate in to a huge extent. The orchestration, the rollout like a product line of this political strategy and that and deal with reality, simple reality. I was saying earlier this morning that one of my all-time favorite book titles is by a a little-known French pacifist named Lanza del Vasto, who wrote a book with the wonderfully envious title, The Principles and Precepts of the Return to the Obvious. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that's obvious that we ought to be dealing with, rather than anesthetizing ourselves with kerfluffle, to use not too technical a term. <laughs> then this final question. You have argued for more civic engagement. You extol the virtues of bringing spiritual values to bear in public life. Yet you have also acknowledged the need for private or personal contemplation. Is there not some tension here? How are we to know when we have made the mistake of being private to the point of selfishness or public to the point of shallowness or hypocrisy? Well, that's a terrific question, and it's exactly the tension that I think we have to hold in this whole conversation. But let me, let me say this as clearly as I know how. I mean, on two sides of that question. Contemplation, prayer, meditation, rightly understood, does not end you up in a pit of narcissism. It ends you up, you're on the Mobius strip, and it takes you back out into the world in a powerful way. Um, Quakers spend hundreds of hours a year in silence, and they are also hugely present in the great social issues of our time. To be in silence and to be in prayer often can mean, rightly held, that it gets you back to the ground where you know what you have to do and you find the courage to do it. On the other side of the fence, as a Quaker, whose spiritual ancestors were hanged on Boston Common, a couple of them, by people who weren't altogether clear about the separation of church and state, I don't have a lot of romance about the good old days. I believe in the separation of church and state. But what I disbelieve in is cultural norms that make it impossible for people to address the real issues, the real pains, the real hopes, the real possibilities of their lives because it's too spiritual or too religious to talk that way. That's nonsense. It's palpable nonsense. It has nothing to do with the wall of separation between church and state. And we need to reclaim a public discourse about things that have meaning to us. And that includes kids and teachers in classrooms where it most importantly needs to go on. Thank you, Parker J. Palmer. Thank you.